And we quickly learned that if we're of the rancher mentality, that is, you know, shoot, shovel, and shut up and get rid of whatever is not working for our economic system, um, that, you know, it just didn't, it didn't sit, sit right at all. We, we were never those type of people, you know, no, no more better, no more worse, just not that type. Welcome to the Into the Wilderness podcast, a modern huntsman production. I'm your host, Byron Pace, and this is episode 206 and our second in the Tecovis Outpost series. If you want to hear where this series started, go back to episode 195 and the brilliant interview with Matt Scogland from North Bridger Bison, recorded in the Sagebrush Steppe of Montana. The Outpost series brings you stories of the wilderness from the American West, from people who live, breathe, and work on the land. You can read articles related to this series on the Tecovis website. Just search for Tecovis Outpost or click the link in the description. In this show, I speak to Malou Anderson Ramirez from her family ranch in the greater Yellowstone ecosystem. She tells of the shifting mindsets around living with wild animals alongside livestock, and in particular, large predators, which are probably the most controversial of all. But more than that, Malou offers a view of the natural world, which encourages observation and alignment with natural processes in order to live more in step with wildlife. Before we hear from Malou, a quick shout out to this week's top-tier Patreon supporters, who include... Richard McNeil, Ronnie Speakman of RD Contracting, UK, James Marshington, the guys at South Asia Stalking, Thomas Cameron, Mark Zabrowski, and Colin Knight. If you would like to support the show, head over to patreon.com forward slash Byron Pace. If you have any suggestions for guests, or there is a particular series format that you have enjoyed, let me know. Email info at paceproductionsuk.com, or find me on social media at Byron J. Pace. It was, it's about five degrees right now. It's warmed up from yesterday when it was negative 13 when I was feeding all the animals. Um, and, you know, I'm, I live in Tom Minor Basin, which is basically like a, a, a bowl, you know, it's sort of, you're, you're held by these mountains that kind of surround us. And then it, and then on one side of the mountains, it opens up and, and goes down into Paradise Valley. So we're sort of looking down onto the greater Yellowstone ecosystem and Yellowstone River. And it's, it's uh, kind of heavenly. It it really is. I can attest to that, having visited your fantastic house nestled in the hills. How far are you from what people would picture as like the Yellowstone National Park boundary? Because you're in the greater Yellowstone ecosystem, but you're not inside the park. That's right. We neighbor uh, the park to the north. So by the by the way the crow flies, we are within, gosh, um, not just a couple miles from the from the park. So we we oh, are Yellowstone. Uh, the only thing we don't have that Yellowstone has is um, bison. And even that over the years, you know, every now and again, um, growing up, there'd be a, a group of bison, very hungry bison coming up the road. And it's such a cool memory. But um, but yeah, so we have everything the park has, basically. And, and for people who don't know, there, there's no fence around that park, is there? No, not really. No, there's, um, there are some boundary lines that are really sensitive. Like for instance, the bison, you know, that's a, that's a major issue in these are this area for bison coming into paradise Valley into unfortunately agricultural land. Um, but that's their, you know, historic land. So there has been some jack fence put up in some pretty rugged areas to try to keep them a little bit more contained when they're getting real hungry in the, in the early spring and the, you know, all the, all the grass is gone in, in Yellowstone. 
So, um, so yeah, there, there are a few fences here and there, but for the most part, no, there's, there's no complete boundary fence. Now I want to get to talking to you about how you live in the landscape that, that your house is in. Um, but by way of background, tell me about growing up there, because am I right in saying that to a greater or lesser degree, that's kind of where you've lived your whole life? Or grew uh, for up. the most part, um, yeah, I grew up here. Um, my dad was a school administrator, and my mom was a nurse. So we've always grown up with the notion of you know really needing to make money off the ranch, and I think that's a really uh, unique perspective of this family. I think before you know it was a forced perspective that turned into a choice of like, hey, wait a minute, there's actually a balance here that makes sense. Um, because then all of our economic value is not tied into the ranch and we can really focus, you know, more primarily on the health of the place and so forth. But so, yeah, my, my dad was a teacher and a school administrator. My, dad, my mom was a nurse. So that took us um, throughout Montana, but we would always be at the ranch on the weekends. And then we and then we lived full time on the ranch growing up. Um, I went away to college and boarding school back east in Connecticut and uh, then moved to California after I got my degree and, and then on to Texas. So I kind of bounced around for a number of years um, and then made it back to this family ranch um, over a decade ago with my husband. And we're here now raising our two young girls. So what does living, or maybe you can d- describe uh, what you mean by ranch, for, uh, first of all. Oh, yeah. Um because so we, mo- we don't have of- ranches here. We have farms <laughs> in, in uh, right. Europe and, right. and, and the UK. But I mean, I think most people will have heard the term. Yes, yes, and it, you're right. It does. It does matter where you where you you are. A ranch in California looks a lot different than a ranch in Montana. <laughs> I uh, I managed a feed store down there for a couple of years, and it was complete and utter culture shock between the two agricultural sectors of Montana and, and Southern California. Um, so this ranch is the smallest of five ranches in the upper basin, and we are about um, a little less than 2,000 acres, and um, I think it's more like sixteen or 1,700. I'm not sure the exact. And then most of the ranches up here, including ours, have uh, public grazing allotments. So that can okay. be anywhere from 3,000 additional acres up to you know, 20, 25,000 acres. Um, and we have, we have one allotment, forest service allotment that we graze. So, so is that like shared That's grazing nice. with other people? Um, on, there's three sections in that particular, and one of those sections is a shared grazing, and then two of them are are our our own. So that does happen a lot, though. So, so tell me, ten years ago, when you moved back and you set up home back at the family ranch, what did it look like in terms of existing there and and work and business and making it um, a place that you can exist in and get something. From as well as put back, because I know from the little bit of time that I spent to you that existing with nature in a symbiotic, sympathetic way is something that's really important to you. It is. It is. You know, it wasn't always like that. Um, We used to have, oh, sorry, I have this very little five pound protective guardian dog. Um, (laughs) We, I mean, literally, it's just ridiculous. so yeah, that we I came back here. We, I was raised on a conventional in a conventional system. This ranch was extremely conventional, um, 
and it wasn't huge. We didn't have a lot of cattle. Um, but, you know, coming back at my degrees in psychology, um, my backgrounds in social services and um, behavioral sciences. So coming back here to the ranch was like, wow, how am I going to make this work? You know, I'm back out in the rural. But I'd always been a ranch kid, um, you know, baseline before all that. So I, um, okay, now that now the five pound dog and the cat are attacking each other. So hold on one second. No problem. Yeah, I, we came back into a conventional system. And at that point in time, we were really considering what does regenerative agriculture and sustainable ranching look like for us. And I immediately took a job at the neighboring ranch. And she's just this incredible grandmother figure for me, always has been. Actually, it was the ranch that my grandfather um, and a couple others sold to her in the 70s. So it was really, it felt like home to me, even though it wasn't this home ranch. It was just up the dirt road. Um, and that really gave me the incredible opportunity to dive deep into the education of regenerative ag and having it being being paid for because I was her land and livestock supervisor. So she was like, hey, why don't you, you know learn even more about, about all this. That's amazing. Um, so I would, yeah, I mean, that was such a gift. I mean, looking back, I didn't realize how much that changed my trajectory in this, in this whole culture of ranching and, and, you know, sort of deep ecology. Like I love the term deep ecology. Um, so coupled with that, you know, that, and then coupled with just some bigger, bigger work that my family was doing at the time, some deeper work, kind of transformational work. Um, it really came together nicely for for all of us, and and so there was this whole idea of you know you can you can do all these things agriculturally that's regenerative and sustainable, but you can also go even further and you know just really practice deep listening and uh, you know like the way I say it is sort of taking the the ego out of agriculture and then being there from a really sort of primal and and um, vulnerable place and there's just so much to learn from that place so. Here we are, still, still learning. Oh, I have so many questions. <laughs> um, so um, deep listening, we've got to talk about that. Uh, but before, I, I want to paint a picture of what ranching pre-regenerative um, agriculture looked like. So the, the kind of the, the state of play in terms of the, the systems in place before you yes. came back and were thinking, this is what I want to do. So, because a lot of, we, we hear this term a lot uh, now, yeah. but I think a lot of people probably don't fully understand it or necessarily understand, okay, well, so we're going from this and we're going to that. So, so what happened or what was the state of play before starting to integrate uh, regenerative agriculture? Yeah, specifically on this ranch. Yeah. Um, I can only I can only think in in memories and in in moments and and talking, um, which was more like you know looking at a pasture land and saying how much can my cows get off that pasture right now like you know looking at a grazing plan or actually no we, there was no grazing plan it was looking at pastures and saying okay we always hit these pastures in the same time every year and our main goal in these pastures is to utilize that grass resource at, to the, to our best advantage for our cows. Um, and so that would be a pretty basic conventional way of looking at things like how, what can I get from this? The most, in, the most I can get from this. And then it shifted into more of looking at the complex system that's already at work and understanding that 
Um, there are elk here, you know, that here we are next to Yellowstone. We have all these things playing and, and this diverse ecosystem that the cattle and we are just a very small part of in some ways. And, and unfortunately in the conventional system, we were a big part of it <laughs> in a, in a negative way. Um, and so looking more at that pasture is a balance of like, okay, so if my, if I, if we allow our cattle to take say 20 or 30% of that grass resource, then there's that much left over for the elk. There's also that much left over for cover, which is, you know, essential, um, covering soil, protecting it from, from all the things is just so incredibly fundamental in, in soil health. Um, and so just, again, like looking at it from a more holistic approach and not just like, what do I need for my cattle? And I'm going to take as much as I can. That would you, be you an can, example. You- you can see why that existed, though, because you're talking about well, there would be a certain percentage left over for the other for the wild animals that are there. But unless you, as the rancher, are getting something from the sort of the hard nosed, just I, I care about the economics of it. Unless you're getting something from those wild animals in return, why would you leave some grazing for them when you could put m- more mouths on your fields and make more money at the end of the day? Which I guess was the mindset. That's so. Yep, absolutely. You know, it was it was part of that mindset. And you know, I, I have a lot of compassion for the the you know, I I have a mixed bag of emotions actually for the for the pioneers that came as it, specifically to this place. Um, you know, I can't imagine being, you know, a pioneer in those times of manifest destiny coming to the West, but then choosing of all the places in the West, something like <laughs> here where they are like, <laughs> I mean, there have been times we've come across, you know, when we've been riding out there over the years and we come across a cabin up in the literal middle of nowhere. I mean, again, as primal and rugged as you can get, you're like, you know, you're thinking of like these mountain men with these massive coats and, you know, and it's like, of course it you know, like leave it to the white man to be like, all right, we're going to stay here full time. When all, all humans before him or her came, you know, this was a, this was a place that they would come and go. It was, it was very nomadic. But it's pioneering and, and um, it's conquering. <laughs> it's conquering. And so yeah. you're in, I guess, to your point, long ways. Yes. In order to make it work here, it was already hard enough to survive. And then to, you know, to make a profit off cattle, for, you know, in the next generation, you, you had to look at weights. You had to look at everything you could possibly do to send the fattest cattle out. So I get it. I get it. From what you've just described, to a more regenerative approach where you are considering, well, what is my impact on the land? What am I leaving behind? Not just for the things that I can get economic value from, but to nature, to the the greater ecosystem, to the landscape. So explain that shift and the kind of things that you started to implement and implement now to consider all of these things. Um, gosh, there's so many. I would say the return of the wolves to Yellowstone was a big shift in the family in terms of Regen Ag. And, um, and that was because of understanding that again, going back to like, gosh, we, we happen to be trying to raise prey next to Yellowstone National Park. Yeah. It's like a McDonald's. Yeah. And a wild, this is a wild country. You don't find anything wilder. This is just like wild Alaska, you know, and, and we're grateful to be here. So my dad, my grandpa, they were always very ecologically minded before I think they even realized they were, you know, um, and so it was my, we were raising sheep then too. It wasn't even cattle, it was sheep. And, you know, my, my parents were like, gosh, you know, we could fight the system along with all the other ranchers in the area or, or we could, you know, just 
get the, get rid of the sheep and enjoy life. And so it kind of goes back to that psychology thing of really it's, it was fundamental in that I was raised and I, I recall having had many or quite a few old, frustrated, exhausted cowboys around me. Um, and I say cowboy, you know, rancher, the men, really a lot of men and women who from that old time were exhausted and, and kind of angry and reactive because they spent their whole lives just working too hard. And a lot of that reactivity was fighting change, you know, fighting reality that was, that was change. So really, you know, sim- simply put, I just didn't want to be an old worn out person, angry and reactive. And I like, I want to, here I am living this incredible place. Like I want to, I want to look back on this life and say, wow, what a gift, you know? And so the regenerative mindset made more sense to me because it, it took the pressure off of having to know all the answers. The regenerative mindset is more about being in process you know, understanding that we're never going to be experts at anything in complex systems. Even the experts aren't experts, you know, that we, that's the beautiful thing about it is we can sit here and just learn and observe and, and do the best we can at, um, at mimicking what we know is successful in natural systems. So, so what was that? Do you, do you remember what that was like when the wolves came back? And I, I imagine there was probably a lot of resistance to them actually being reintroduced in the first place for exactly the reasons that you've alluded to there, which is attacks on, on cattle, which is which is money, which is livelihood. What was That's the right. kind of feeling and vibes at that time? Yeah, there was a lot of fear um, and that for, of that exact thing. Um, there was the, the, the same thing is happening now. Um, there was a lot of competition around agricultural lands versus wildlife and, and a wildlife corridors. The GYE, the Greater Yellowstone Ecosystem, happens to be one of the most biodiverse wildlife corridors, as I've, as I've been told, the second to the Serengeti on, on the globe. And so here we are as ranchers. Um, in those places, it was it's a tough thing. Um, but back then, you know, it was it was really hard. It hit us quickly. You know, being being where we are, we were in that cor- we were smack in that corridor. So everyone's scared about the wolves. We're we're knowing that the wolves were coming at some point. You know, once they were introduced, reintroduced. For us, we were right at the you know right at the doorway of Yellowstone. So once they were reintroduced, there they were. Um, and it was tough that first few years. We had uh, uh, some beloved dogs that were killed. Uh, we had lots of sheep killed. Um, we, we had a lot of losses. And, and so, yeah, it was kind of giving up, but also it paved the way into this part of our regenerative ag in this part of the world is, again, coexistence and bio, biodiversity and, and how we can support biodiversity. And we quickly learned that if we're of the rancher mentality that is, you know, shoot shovel and shut up and get rid of whatever is not working for our economic system um, that, you know, it just didn't, it didn't sit, sit right at all. We could, we were never those type of people, you know, no, no more better, no more worse, just not that type. And then I guess on top of that, you're forever fighting. You're, you're kind of continually at war with nature. That's right. And that was it. The, back to that whole thing, you know, the fundamentals of just like, I don't want to be angry. You know, I mean, I'm, I'm, wow. I get to go out and, you know, pick noxious weeds and possibly see a grizzly bear at the same time. Like I get to go and change cattle into a new pasture, knowing that they're going into grizzly bear country and, and, and also being really, really proactive and aware and knowing that our losses are probably going to be 
you know, not bad because we're doing all these different things um, and learning all these different techniques to coexist. And then, gosh, how amazing that is that to live on a landscape that we can, our, you know, our fellow inhabitants are, are things like that. That's, yeah, that's incredible. So you, you got rid of the sheep because I'm assuming they're really easy prey, bite-sized snacks oh, yeah. for wolves. <laughs> they're like little um, marshmallows. <laughs> yeah. You, you mentioned dogs, which is, uh, I, I suppose, for, for anybody who has livestock, every, people who have livestock care about their livestock. Like maybe it's, it's a different relationship to a pet, but there is still a deep care there. But you also said that you lost dogs. Did you then get different types of dogs to live in that landscape? Or how did you address that? Because you, you still have dogs at your house. Yeah, we do. We've always had dogs. We've had, we, I think that that's a huge piece of these, you know, like ancient, there's so much ancient human wisdom that we've lost with how ancient humans coexisted with, with large carnivores. And one of them was dogs, always having dogs and packs around them. Um, and, and I have noticed substantially that dog energy and, you know, canine energy really works well with that. Um, so we've always had guard dogs. We've always had great Pyrenees, um, and we did not, no, we did not change breeds. We, we didn't do anything. We knew that there's always, you know, it's sort of this tolerance level of like understanding that this might happen and there's a good chance that it will. You know, the percentage of it happening multiple times through a lifetime is pretty low. And we're willing to put that as part of our sort of tolerance um, management system, if you will. It's the same with losing livestock. You know, a rancher going into a, a tolerance um, state of mind can't go into that saying, I, I do, I cannot lose livestock up here. This is a pro, you know, this is going to be a problem. You have to go into that knowing that there might be one or two losses and being okay with that loss. So, so tell me about some of your um, conflict mitigation measures that you've taken because, so is it just cattle that you have now? Just have cattle now, and even then, we we just lease graze now, which which basically is a is another sort of regenerative way. Um, it's a it's a way for for producers to not have to own cattle anymore, but to utilize their grass resource for other ranchers and producers. Um, okay. So so I should say landowners instead of producers. Um, and you basically sign a contract saying, hey, I'm going to keep all your cattle alive. I'm going to protect them. I'm going to give them the best grass I have. I'm basically going to treat them like my own. And then in the fall, when the grazing season is done and the growing season is done, then you then the cattle go back down to lower winter country, which makes a lot of sense. Again, it's, it's mimicking what used to happen here. The bison would come up yeah. here through the growing season, and then they'd leave. The ancient humans would come up through the growing season, and they'd, they'd leave. So it's really... It's amazing because it allows uh, producers and ranchers to, you know, do things that we didn't do in the past, like take vacations in the winter and go <laughs> travel and see the world. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. So, so some of our – so that would be one of them actually right there. That would be a mitigation or I should, I should say reduction. There's no way that we'll ever mitigate this, I hope, because that would probably mean there would be no wolves and grizzly bears left. Uh, so is that just because – Winter time, there's less food, and so more likely to have attacks on livestock. Is that the, is that the main reason? The main reason for getting cattle out of here? No, the main reason for because you said that 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 is like one mitigation measure for conflict with wolves or grizzly yes. bears. Yes, that would be one, and the other would be that typically cattle are are calving in the early spring, which is still sort of winter in Montana. So it's best when they calve somewhere where their calves are not the youngest, young, you know, youngest babies on the landscape. So, um, elk, you know, right now elk, let's see, elk start to calve in early June usually. Um, 
and and the bison start to calve a little earlier than that. And so, you know, that's just ridiculous to think. And again, going back to that anger of, of producers being angry that the grizzlies or wolves are killing their calves when their calves are the only living young on the landscape at the time. And they're, you know, they're not a natural, it's not a natural system. They're calving at times where in nature that wouldn't happen. Um, so yes, exactly. Like mitigating um, any reason for wolves or bears or anything else to come in close and to to kill livestock. So it just depends. I mean, we, it's been 15, 20 years of, of experiment, experimenting with all kinds of different mitigation tactics. So reduction-wise, uh, one of the big ones we've done is range riding. And that was my sister-in-law's program that she started up here. Um, really, the idea of range riding is, you know, for one, um, tracking and and watching what's happening, looking for bird sign, looking for scat. You know, if you find wolf scat out there with brown hair in it, then that's, that looks like a red angus or, or some other, you know, domestic animal. And so then you're sort of more on the you know, you're observing at a at a hyper level and you're trying to find those carcasses because we have a compensation program that that producers get compensated for those livestock losses if they're confirmed by, a, you know, depredation by a, a large carnivore. And so that's really huge. I mean, in places like Idaho, that can be a three to one ratio of what that animal is worth, a six to one ratio if it's a wolf. That's big money. Hmm. Um, so, Range riding is a big one. And it's also just while you're out there, you are a human you know, human presence on the land. We're here. We're not here egotistically. We're not here dominating, but we're here observing. And when you when one ma- um, moves in patterns and consistent patterns, especially this is a global fact uh, through data that um, when you move consistent consistently in patterns <laughs> you are showing the, the the wildlife of the globe understand that and they do the same so for, so for instance like all the old logging roads all across the globe um it's been seen many times over that wildlife use those at night because they know we use them during the day um so really cool stuff like that then there's things like electric fence and flagery flagery is electrified fence that's about 16 inches off the ground with red flags, flag, you know, um, rectangular red flags. And that's a very human shape. And so when that's whipping in the wind, that really freaks out wildlife. They are very, um, they don't know what to think. And then they typically stay away from it. We've had incredible success with our flagery systems. Um, huh. Fox lights, the blink, blinking lights that sort of randomly blink. There's no pattern or consistency to them um, that you can put up. You know, if you've had a couple losses in a forest, for, for instance, and you can't move those cattle out right away, you could put up fox lights for just a couple nights to help, you know, give yourself some time. Um, and and the, there's something about the lights, too, that you, typically wolves are like, what is that? Um <laughs> All kinds of stuff. I mean, there's this thing called rag boxes. I'm sure you've heard of it. They're basically like boom boxes that people put out with their herd. And they play, you know, anything from loud firecrackers and and music or humans yelling, like really any human sound. Um, you know, they don't, they don't want anything to do with us. <laughs> what about uh, like protecting dogs, like cattle dogs? Uh, that's probably not, yeah. not, the, not, the, not the breed I was thinking of, but I, I've seen that in other countries. I've seen that in, um, oh, sure. in Africa quite a bit, actually. For sure. Dogs are incredible and, and we've used them with our sheep. We have not used them with our cattle yet because our cattle go way out. So to feed those dogs would be tricky. Um, but guard dogs work 
amazingly well. And, uh, you know, back to sort of that loss, the, the only unfortunate thing about guard dogs, livestock guardian dogs, is that their life expectancies are quite low because they okay. do often get you know, killed. Um, but that's, again, part of what we know going into it. Mm. So, yeah, those, those are just a few. We've, we've done all kinds of stuff. And now we're sort of shifting into looking at soil biology and plant biology. One of the things that's happening right now in the basin is this um, invasive species. It's, it's non-noxious, thankfully, and it, it is edible. It's, a car- it's caraway, so it's sort of a, a cousin to the fennel. It's, um, I'm more starting to think, gosh, how can we farm this for humans? I mean, there's so much around. How so was it, it somehow introduced? It, we don't know exactly, but more than likely about 15 or 20 years ago, there was a lot of construction happening in the basin, some barns being restored and new gravel roads. And, and more than likely it came in on some construction trucks or okay. you know some gravel or something. Um, and it has taken off. It loves highland, irrigated pasture lands. Um, and it's it's just everywhere. And the bears absolutely love it. The, it's It's happened at the same time that the white bark pine, the, one of the main food sources of grizzly bears, have been decimated due to climate changes. And there, there's a particular caterpillar or moth that has to that has to burrow up. And, and um, it if it's not consecutively cold enough in the winter, these, these little caterpillars do, don't die. And so they have completely decimated the population of white bark pine all over the Intermountain West. Uh, it's pretty devastating. And so the bears have come down into their historical habitat. You know, their grizzly bears are historically rangeland. Pat, um, um, you know, black bears were 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 forest bears, and grizzly bears were were out on the rangeland and prairie land. And then I don't know when I'm not an expert, but at some point in time that switched, and they went up into the forest and they started eating white bark pine. And now they're coming back down into their historical habitats, and they're finding all kinds of things because they're basically like humans with fur. <laughs> and um, they're going to be, they, they will always find a food source. And, and unfortunately, a lot of those food sources get them in trouble in the human, in the human culture. So um, anyway, so I'm looking more at like soil biology and, you know, what it is, what is it about these soils that, that the caraway really loves? Um, there's a, there's an imbalance somewhere here and uh, the bears are digging up the soil. And so they're really disturbing the ground enough that the caraway loves it so much that it's, they're basically farming the caraway in this incredible way. Um, so That's yeah, so all, all kinds of things. What has been the detrimental effect of caraway other than it's there? Is it taking over other species that would have been there if they didn't exist? Oh yeah. Yeah, it is. It's well, it's, it's an interesting thing. It's for one, it's bringing in a lot of more bears there. The bears are everywhere. Um, that's why people are coming up here like Yellowstone. I mean, literally uh, people by last year, or I did the math of the cars. I, I run an association called the Tom Miner Basin Association, and it's all around the health and um, of our ecosystem here in the basin and, and all the things that we keep talking about right now. And uh, through that, I had an intern doing some tickers and counting cars, and we realized that there were 9,000 additional cars that came up Whoa. this dirt road, this, one, this one-way dirt road, by the way. Yeah. So they all had to come back down um, from May to October just to see the grizzly bears. Um, digging caraway in the fields right next to the road, so That's it's a crazy. it's a it's a substantial issue. It is it is, um, and the the interesting thing is that they are what what it's killing because it loves the pasture lands. So at the turn of the century, you know, with the the landowners seeded all these pasture lands with with mainly brome and timothy. And both of those are incredibly invasive grass species. Um, you know, we, we talk about noxious weeds all the time, and brome is 
up there as, as one of those, but as a grass and unfortunately an edible grass. Um, but it's completely taken over diverse species. Um, and, and the, you know, the elk especially really struggle with things like that because again, they don't have any of their native grasses left anymore. The fascinating thing though, is that it's really hard to kill brome. You almost have to spray it. Um, I mean, everything's been tried, tilling, burning, everything, and, and it's spraying works, unfortunately, but but that's chemical. Um, but the bears, when they're digging the brome or the caraway, are killing the brome. Huh. And so it's really fascinating. So what we're doing is we are taking advantage of that system and and trying to sort of bump it up in its own way. So we have a really a unique mix of native grass species that we are reseeding by hand in all of those bare spots in hopes that they might be able to take over, outcompete the brome, which is pretty, it will be hard to do, but we're going to give it a shot. That's fascinating. So it is, it is. I know I could geek about, geek out about <laughs> it all day long. In terms of, um, so you still have cattle on the landscape. So how how has the the management of those cattle changed to be more sympathetic to the landscape so that they're not overgrazing for as one example in an area and I'm I'm sure that's something that probably historically happened. Yes, absolutely. And and those actually those animals are also the most vulnerable in terms of predator um and large carnivores because often they're sort of scattered about, about in a huge area. And, um, and if they stay in one place, then the large carnivores always know that they're there. Um, so to your, to your question, grazing plans and rotational grazing plans have been a huge change for us. Um, so we actually look, you know, there are equations, there's things called animal units, animal unit measurements, and uh, we use those to determine what the grass utilization is in each, or should I say the resource is in each in each pasture, taking into account, you know, uh, timber areas, riparian areas, and all those things. And so then we create a grazing plan around that. So there's, you know, three days in one pasture, four days in the other. And we're really just, you know, there's this term called grazing up in the summer and grazing down in the fall and the winter. And so we're really just grazing up through the grazing season, which means that we're hoping our cattle only really take the tops of the grass and, and the rest is left to continue growing through the year. And if we need to come back through again in the fall after the grazing season is over, we can we can catch another bite off that and still have plenty of cover. So it's, it's things like that. Um, really, it's basically that walking your cattle through some of these pastures just long enough for them to definitely get a bite and then move on to the next place. And there's all these incredibly fascinating things that we need in these ungulates, um, you know, that we have lost because of getting rid of so many ungulates across the land over, over, you know, hundreds and hundreds of years. Um, and one of them is herd impact and the importance of those hoofs, um, on the land and and scraping the land, changing changing the soil, creating little places where water can collect instead of run off. Yeah. Um, all the all these things that happen when cattle are grazing. It, it seems like a lot more effort to run a ranch the way that you're running it. Do you? Is there <laughs> is there a, a, a beyond the the, the very. Um, complicated but you've made quite obvious benefit that you you gain as an individual and your family gain by living more sympathetically with nature is there an actually is there an economic gain in in the output i, I can't quite imagine that you would be getting like more for your cows even though they they're probably living a much better life 
other than maybe do they put more weight on because of the way that you're managing them? Yeah, they do. It's well, for oh, one, they do. we have incredible. Okay, because I was only guessing. <laughs> well, they do um, mainly because yeah, they're not stressed out. They're not trying to find uh, more grass. Um, they're they are getting the grass up here is unbelievable. For one, our sugar content in the, in the grasses up in Tom Miner Basin and the GYE are some of the best in the world. And that's why this, that's why at the turn of the century, all of this was, was grown because it was actually then sent away to Kentucky, um, to the horse, to the racetracks. I mean, this was, these were the horse, oh, wow. you know, the race horses, race horses of the turn of the century were on this hay. Um, and so, yeah, there's that aspect, but then yes, you get more yield. There's so much more yield when you holistically graze and, and, and rotationally graze. And mind you, there's a, there's a proper way to rotationally graze and there's a really improper way. And so education is really incredibly important in learning all this. And, and a lot of ranchers don't want to know the educate. They just want to go out and do it. And unfortunately that's, it's just not going to work if you want a, a, sustain, a sustainable system. So, um, so, you know, if you, if you're aware of anything about plant biology, the idea is that the the what you see above ground is exactly what is below it's reflecting what is below ground in root structure and length um, and so if you are overgrazing plants above ground over and over and over again in the same systems um, the root structure never gets low enough to get the really in- essential minerals and nutrients out of the soil or aerate the soil and it's again it's this entire complex system that we are unaware of and so the idea then is that you, if you only graze the tops, if you just graze a little bit, those root structures get stronger and deeper and your, your grasses and your native species gets richer and healthier and your yields are far more. I mean, their producers have talked about doubling, tripling their grass yields by wow. properly holistically grazing. Oh yeah, for sure. So, so why is this not the norm? Because for the way that you've described it, there's now very clear both economic and environmental benefits. But it's only something that's been that I've heard being talked about much more recently. And in terms of feet on the ground, in terms of cattle around the world, this is definitely not the norm. No, it's not. <laughs> well, for one, I, I think it's safe to say that we have a, way too many cattle in the world. Um, you know, I'm I'm a rancher who believes in less and better beef and and meat systems, for instance, wild game. Um, and so that, you know, that was a big problem right there. When we turned from from quality to quantity to, you know, to feed the world, then our systems changed. Um, and this, you know, goes more into deep listening again. Like I can I can go hokey pokey so quick with this stuff because of my background. <laughs> so explain deep listening more. I want to understand this, what you mean by it. Well, just, you know, it, it takes deep listening and and deep understanding, or at least deeply trying to understand a system to see what's happening under the surface and what's happening in the soil. And instead of just saying, this is what I want, this is what I'm going to get, and not, um, not allowing oneself to quiet enough to really, like, again, listen and observe the greater natural systems already at work. And if these natural systems are so productive and successful, yet also, you know, you look at, for instance, death loss, you know, it's a, it's a hard thing for a producer to mimic the same ungulate systems in nature when the death loss in the natural systems are much higher than the death loss, say, on an agricultural, yeah. you know, operation. So that's, there's also, there are some difficulties here and and that's okay. There will always be nuance. Um 
So yeah, it's, you know, it was the quality versus quantity when it shifted. It was industrial ag, big ag that shifted when, you know, what looking at soil is what can we get from, what's the most we can get from this instead of how can we be a part of this? And, and it's really that simple. And um, I just, yeah, it's, we really, there's so much happening right now with big ag and, and, uh, and industrial ag and, and shifting over to regenerative. And unfortunately, regenerative falls under the umbrella of agriculture for the, for the mainly the, you know, Joe publics and the Jane publics. And it's, it's just so incredibly important right now to educate uh, on the differences. And um, because one, one is actually decimating, you know, so much of the world while the other one is supporting and, and enhancing and, and part of a healthy system. How did you see the nature around you shifting as you started to integrate this regenerative system on the ranch? Mm-hmm. Well, we're just scratching the surface, no pun intended. Um, I mean, and we've been at it for a little while, but, you know, again, in in the natural system, it's really hard for the human brain to comprehend the timeline of the natural system. And so that's why we get stuck into like, you know, wanting to get rid of noxious weeds or, oh my gosh, those are tap roots. We need to get rid of them. And it's like, well, wait a minute. And in Earth's timeline, it might be that he he or she or they know what, what... she's doing and what she needs. And maybe she needs aeration now. And maybe that's why the taproots are there. But in our human timeline, we're looking at like a hundred years. And so it's really difficult for our, you know, human capacity to, to understand that. So in that aspect, it's very humbling and, and also the pressure's off because uh, these things take a long time to shift over. But one of the things I think for me, I've noticed is um, I kind of feel like it knows that we've that our mindset has shifted and and i can't there's not it's hard to put words to it but there's an energy i feel when i'm out um that is ah uh, gosh again it's the words don't come it, it, it's a feel and um i felt very much in the dark before and i felt very much um unknowing before and I still am unknowing, but when I'm out on my land and on this land and, and walking and being a part of this, there is an incredible sense of um, sort of it's it's not coexistence. It's like it's like a shared uh, a shared place together, and I and I feel that sense coming from the land itself as you know, and I didn't have that before. And that's a shared place with a family, and you have two children who I met. Uh, when I was at your place, mm-hmm. how how do you uh, in this fast paced modern world of mobile phones and and iPads and and TV and a million other things that are going to s- distract children from the great outdoors? How do you get them to integrate into nature and and see the world the way that you see it? Obviously, you want people to fi- uh, children and everybody to find their own path and see things in their own way, but to help them understand why it's important? Mm, great question. Um, you know, I think I, I try to lead by example, um, but I think a lot of it is just allowing them to be out there, really kind of forcing them. You know, kids don't necessarily want to be outside all the time, and, and especially ranch kids. You know, ranch kids have it tough. They they have to do a lot of adult-type situations and have be out there for long periods of time when, when other kids aren't, and it is hard, and I know that from experience. 
And actually, I have some, you know, small traumas from some of those experiences growing up. <laughs> so I don't necessarily want that for my children. However, just letting them go and explore and be, you know, I really trust the the holding presence of this landscape, uh, e- even with the bears and the wolves. And I also trust their own innate, you know, instincts to keep themselves safe. Um, that it, it, what a what an incredible place for them to grow up and, and understand oh, the sure. world. And we need more of it. We need more kids like that. You know, that's what I keep, I tell all my friends who are of similar mindsets, like, good God, please reproduce because we, we need <laughs> more children who are, are instinctually listening on a deeper level. I, I agree with your sentiments there. But Malou, it's been a fascinating conversation to, to hear somebody so clearly fascinated by the world around you. And I think if there's one major takeaway from my conversation now with you and the conversation I had with you when I saw you in person is that you get a lot of value both personally and what you can give back to the environment around you by stopping and listening and watching and just trying to understand better. I think we spend a lot of time running and not a lot of time stopping. Um, but I certainly took that away from our conversation. Indeed. Thank you. Yep, that's, that is right on. Well, thank you very much for coming on the show. And uh, I look forward to speaking to you again. Well, thank you for having me. <laughs>